From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking at the rise and fall of IBM's personal computer business. My name is Stephen Hackett. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Quinn Nelson. Hello, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you doing? I'm good. It's snowing here, which is unusual. Ooh, that's fun. So my whole family's home. Uh, conversely, today. Conversely, it's supposed to be snowing here, and it's it's raining right now. So it's like snow that didn't quite make it. Right, right. It probably was snow at one point. <laughs> yeah, right. Humidity, clouds, systems. How do they work? Yes, we are pivoting to be a weather podcast. No, I'm just mm-hmm, kidding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to talk about PC clones and the very sad, quiet end of IBM's personal computer business. I think I'm a clone now. That's a different... Mm-hmm. Oh, different clones? Oh, right. That's Mac clones. Okay. Mm-hmm. This 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 predates that a little bit. A little bit. Mm. Okay. So IBM, they're making computers. They're pretty good. They've done the antithesis to what people expected IBM to do, right? It's It's off-the-shelf components. It's pretty open hardware platform. It's cool. Everyone likes it. And uh, they're selling pretty well. Uh, but here's the thing. Lots of people want in on the money. Yeah. <laughs> and IBM has an interesting lack of hardware patents. Now, do you know the reason why? Maybe it's because they just, you know, they pulled this thing together in a year and didn't really expect it to be a smashing success. Like, I, I don't know. Why? did Why? Yeah, pretty much. And they used all okay. those off-the-shelf components. There really wasn't much special. That was there, so to say. Right. Now, okay. when you get to things like ROM code and the BIOS... Sure. And we'll talk about that. Software's, software's a little uh, a little more special. Okay. So they don't have many hardware patents because they didn't really, frankly, do that much. And then you've got Microsoft, who, remember, uh, didn't choose to sell and IBM didn't choose to buy MS-DOS. And so Microsoft is basically able to sell it to just about anyone that wants it. And so, as you can suspect, lack of hardware patents, availability of the same operating system, there is a range of IBM compatibles that start to spring up and they flood the market. Many companies obviously took this opportunity. We're going to talk about a few of them in this episode. But to do so, they needed to reverse engineer IBM's ROM and BIOS code. So all the the firmware, if you will, that really wasn't so much a word in Mm -hmm. in the early 80s, I don't think, but... The, the low-level code that makes the hardware work uh, had to be reverse-engineered. You can't just go rip a ROM chip out of a PC because then right. lawyers are going to show up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The first company to do this was Columbia Data Products. We're going to talk uh, a lot more about them in a minute. But a couple of years later, another company called Phoenix Technologies did it. They reverse-engineered this code, and then they licensed their own PC-compatible ROM code. So Columbia Data mm. Products did it for their own PC clone. Right. Phoenix Technology, I think, in a, I think this is a brilliant move. Said we can reverse engineer it, and then just like Microsoft, we can just license it. We don't have to make the hardware. We can make money right. to everyone. Whoever yeah, wants we can it. make the money licensing to all these other companies. Uh, this led to a lot of back and forth with lawyers and lawsuits. Um, but uh, Phoenix Technologies' code would eventually end up in machines by companies like uh, Hewlett-Packard, the Tandy Corporation, and a lot more. They were pretty successful at it. And the machines themselves, dubbed IBM PC compatibles, these clones were really set up to address all sorts of markets, right? Um, Because IBM, 
you know, they 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 tried. They they were expanding into into greater markets, but uh, in general, their stuff was still relatively expensive compared to other kind of uh, certainly CPM PCs of the era. But but even relative to <laughs> other consumer hardware, I mean, you look at the early '80s. You've got um, the TRS-80. You've got I mean, the IBM PC Junior was expensive, and it didn't really take hold like they had expected in the home. And so these compatibles were set up to just address all sorts of markets with a wide range of features and hardware options and prices more than IBM as a single company could ever really make possible by itself. Uh, today we're going to talk about six of the clones that jumped out at us during our research for this episode. This is the tiniest sliver of the top of the mm-hmm. iceberg. Mm-hmm. We could go for hours talking about this. And my guess is people listening may have experienced compatibles that we're not even going to talk about. But these are six that we felt were representative in a way, or a couple of them were just like really weird, so we wanted to talk about them. But I hope it gives you yeah. a little bit of a taste of just how many of these things they were, and really in a very short period of time. We're really talking like yeah, 82, 83, 84, 85, like... Yeah, three, four years. Yeah, it's it's unreal how quickly this market just showed up. Let's start with the one that kind of, well, starts it all. And that is, we mentioned them a little bit previously, the Columbia Data Products MPC-1600. It's a good name. I like the name is like stout, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So launching in 1982, the CDP MP-1600... Oh, MP... I botched it. I botched it. Anyway... <laughs> This, this computer <laughs> was the first computer on the market to basically clone an IBM PC Model 5150. How? Well, as stated previously, IBM's lack of hardware patents and DOS's availability left a pretty wide open opportunity. And really the only thing novel that CDP needed to create was a BIOS because IBM was theoretically protected, their their BIOS was protected by copyright law. And Stephen mentioned this, but it really kind of comes down to a concept called clean room design. It's the method by which through reverse engineering, uh, you write novel code so that it basically does the same thing that you reverse engineered, but without directly copying the code. So you can escape and skirt by uh, infringing copyrights because technically you didn't really copy anything. (laughs) Now, Clean room designs are almost never successful in defeating software patents. But remember, IBM was kind of lacking in the patents department. Yeah. And so really, they only had their copyright to stand on. And as long as you can rewrite it, you're good to go. In fact, IBM almost facilitated this a little bit <laughs> because they had previously pub- uh, published bus and bio specifications with the intended goal of encouraging add-in card partners. But it really kind of accomplished the inverse. These documents were the primary resource in helping CDP create their own clean room design BIOS. There's also some irony here that MS-DOS, which helped make this all possible, was, depending on if you ask Gary Kildall or not, reverse engineered, you know, clean room designed (laughs) from CPM, right? So sort of the same like... Theft on top of theft on top of... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it hits here too. So, um, yeah. uh, Columbia Data Products launched this computer in 1982 as the multi personal computer. Mm. Sick burn mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. The, uh, the IBM, just a personal computer. This one, multi personal computer. Of course, yeah. it can run DOS, uh, but it gets its name, name because it could also run MPM, the multi user version 
of CPM. And this is a little bit of a pattern to pay attention to. A lot of these machines could run multiple operating systems. While the machine itself kind of copied most of IBM's 5150, it didn't copy everything. In fact, in a few ways, it was superior to the original. Um, it came standard, for example, with 128 kilobytes of RAM compared to IBM's 64K. It also came with eight expansion slots compared to IBM's five. But it gets even cooler because on a 5150, you effectively, you really only had three slots because the video card and the floppy disk interface took up two of those slots right from the factory. And we've talked about this previously where this quickly became a limitation for IBM because, you know, you, you have five slots, but most of them come full. Mm -hmm. in, in contrast, the MPC. 1600 it had the floppy disk drive interface built into the motherboard directly yeah so that freed up an extra slot and so effectively it had seven slots compared to ibm's uh, 5150 that had three effectively um open slots so that's really appealing and then to kind of make matters even better and this should be a surprise to no one price uh, the CDP MPC 1600 sold for not that much less, but a couple hundred dollars less than the entry-level 5150 and with better specs. So kind of sounds like a recipe for success, right? Yeah. I mean, in the first year of sales, they cleared $70 million in revenue. That's pretty good. They decided to go public uh, and they sell 2 As million <laughs> shares for $11 each on the stock market. Pretty good. I mean, I'm not a That's pretty economist, good. but that seems pretty good. Yeah, yeah. But, and this is like, this is how all these companies end, for the, for the most part. The competition became so fierce, and some really yeah. big names came in, that a lot of these companies with thinner margins just couldn't, uh, they just couldn't play the game long term. Right. Uh, there was yeah. just basically no margin for price cuts uh, for some of these systems. And in 1984, just two years later... They lay off over 300 employees, and the next year their stock has dropped to 50 cents, and they end up getting delisted from the stock market. Again, mm -hmm. not an economist, but that seems bad. And, uh, <laughs> and they end up filing for bankruptcy in 1986. Look, this episode's not about CDP, but this is kind of cool. After their Chapter 11 filings, the company goes private in 1986, and they start to focus on software instead. Um, and they develop software uh, to interface with this new thing called SCSI, and they license it to Western Digital. Yeah. The hard drive maker. Pretty cool. Um, so I think that was a pretty good little gig for them over, over time. And then, you know, through the decades, the company has morphed over time. And, and CDP still kind of seems to exist today. It got acquired by a company like 15, 20 years ago. And they now use the old CDP.com domain for their own usage. And CDP has moved to CDPI.com. And if you look under the news section of their website, the most recent thing is 2013. So yeah, mm. I don't think they're super active anymore, but uh, a shadow of its former self for sure. And that yeah. is the story with most of these companies, many of which, you know, just, you know, came and went within a couple years in mm -hmm. the 80s. So the fact that CDP has any legacy is already better than most. So I want to talk about the Compaq Portable. Out of a sea of compatible machines, the Compaq Portable is the one that most people probably are aware of. Compaq is a household name, or at least definitely was not that long ago. Yeah. And the the Portable was their first product. Hmm. We spoke a couple episodes ago about the IBM PC Portable, like the, you know, the giant... 
yeah, portable, yeah. luggable machine. Like the briefcase one, right? It didn't have a battery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. massive. Mm-hmm. Well, Compact Portable was was really designed and built to make a better version of that. Now, it was not the first luggable computer. The Osborne and the K-Pro launched as early as 1980, but they were CPM machines, and Compaq wanted to make the first on-the-go machine that ran that ran DOS. Uh, but they weren't even first for that, were they? Dynalogic, uh, Eagle Computer, uh, Corona Data Systems, and, and a couple of others. Eagle Computer is, is definitely the kind of most uh, famous standing example of, of these three items. But they also all launched with similar products at around the same time. So they had Intel 8088s. They were ready to rumble. They ran DOS. And so the question kind of becomes, well, then what's novel about the Compact? Because it wasn't the first computer that was portable. It wasn't even the first Intel 8088, you know, DOS computer. It comes down to, yet again, the BIOS. Yes. The ROM. You know, it's important to note that the good old IBM, they didn't just take the flooding number of clones that were coming onto the market and dying down uh, or lying down. They were were known as a litigious company. (laughs) They, they, uh, you know, they, they weren't the most friendly company when it came to competition. Everyone's copying their stuff and, and they're, you know, not stoked about it. And many of the companies that were entering onto the scene, they didn't really do a great job at clean rooming IBM's BIOS and, and committed all manner of copyright infringement. And then the ones that didn't infringe often re- just really didn't have a similar enough BIOS to claim very good compatibility. <laughs> so there's either two options copy the BIOS and get sued, or don't copy the BIOS very well, you'll only work with a portion of the software catalog and you're not that appealing on the market. Compact stands apart because they aimed and achieved basically complete compatibility all while avoiding IBM's legal team. I mean, they they were really the first ROM and BIOS that were truly kind of perfectly re-engineered from the ground up. The other thing they did right was they just made the best hardware in this sort of weird category. It had a single half-height, five-and-a-quarter drive, but it supported double-density disks. You could upgrade it to a second drive if you wanted to. Uh, 128K of memory and a CRT display that had some clever functionality allowing for uh, different font sizes between internal and external monitors. So if you use this on your desk, it was like with external display, it was better suited for that than some of the others. Right. And it was a huge success. They sold 53,000 units the first year, $111 million in revenue. That's, I mean, that's amazing, right? Because this is a portable computer. This is kind of like a weird form factor. And, And maybe I'm wrong, but based on my research, I feel like the reason it was so successful was just because it was really the first PC compatible that was fully compatible. (laughs) And so the form factor almost didn't matter because it was the first IBM PC option that alternative that was really viable at scale. And they just kept, they just kept winning at this. So they, they released more machines the next year and they, they posted $329 million in revenue the third year, $509 million. It really cemented compact in the industry and shows how dominant they were. And again, it all comes down to the BIOS. Almost anyone could build a PC compatible with the hardware, but that BIOS is really what made the first compact portable as good as it was. And 
is really the distinguishing factor between a bunch of these machines. If you're wanting to know more about these early portable clones, and you should, uh, David, the 8-Bit guy on YouTube, has a fantastic video that we have linked in the show notes for your viewing consumption. And if you watch that video, you'll also note that there's another computer that David talks about, the Hyperion. Uh, tell me about this one, Stephen. Yeah, so it launched in January 83. So actually beat Compact to the market. But mm. this is a good lesson in how being first isn't always enough. During its development, the project got kicked around between several different companies, including Commodore. Uh, it never was released as a Commodore machine, but there's some advertising and stuff showing like Commodore logo on it. Very strange. <laughs> it was smaller and lighter than the Compaq, but again, coming down to these implementation details, not as compatible as the Compaq either. It, it could run MS-DOS, but to help make up for the compatibility issues... Uh, Dynalogic, who is the company who happened to own it when it came out, I guess, uh, came, it bundled a system called HDOS with it. And it had a bundled word processor, database, and modem software. So you could run your MS-DOS programs, but if they didn't work for some compatibility issue, they had this fallback system called HDOS. Yeah, that's strange. I mean, it, it makes sense, I guess, but... Why not just try and make a better BIOS? Well, maybe that's <laughs> way harder than <laughs> I make it. Sound. Yeah, you make a yeah, BIOS. Yeah. Come on, uh, I, I definitely. Yeah, on the hardware front, it included dual 360K five and a quarter inch floppies, a built-in seven inch Amber CRT, uh, but the video out had uh, the ability to display CGA graphics. Hmm. One of the the unique things about this machine, other than its design, I actually think it's pretty handsome looking. I think it's a pretty good looking machine. I think it's better looking than the compact personally. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, but one of its unique features was the use of function keys. So there was a yeah. row of function keys above the keyboard and they were tied to context aware menu systems. As long as you were using Dynalogic's own applications, own program. So if you were in HDOS and in their word processor, these function keys were context-aware and let you do different things in the menu system. So it's like the touch bar, but in hardware like 39 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty crazy. And uh, yeah, I guess 1983 was almost 40 years ago. That's the year you were born, right, Stephen? I was born in 86. Come on. I got a few years left in my 30s. Now, I, got a, I got a couple of years left before I cracked the 30-year mark. No, I don't want to hear it. I don't hear. Mm. Can we just talk about real, real quick how Dynalogic Hyperion is like the coolest sounding company name and product name ever? Yes, it is. If it if it was a name competition, they would have definitely been the best selling. That's true. I agree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They didn't. They didn't do so well though. They had this initial sales rush because remember they beat the compact market. Right. But basically, as soon as the world saw the compact, uh, the Hyperion was dead in the water. Yeah. They had some hardware issues with the disk drives and I mean, compact just ate their lunch and the Hyperion was pulled from sale after 18 months, uh, at a loss of $48 million. Oh yeah. Not so, good. I'm not like a super big business expert. I did go to business school, but one thing we learned is that you generally don't want to lose tons of money. No. No, no, generally no. amazon excluded anyway uh okay so we, we move on to the next one right and yes. this is the hp 150 yes. this thing is so freaking weird <laughs> it it's my favorite it's just it's so weird hewlett packard gets in the game in 83 
they built an all-in-one. So not a luggable. Yeah. It wasn't meant to be taken place to place because it was built around a nine-inch CRT. Okay. But it's an all-in-one, like the Macintosh would be just a year later. Here's the thing. Nine-inch CRT, 80-column display mode, touch-enabled. What? There's a touchscreen? Yeah. So how they did this is they had, around the bezel of the display, there were a bunch of little holes, and those holes included infrared emitters and detectors. And so when you would touch the screen, the tip of your finger would break through this grid of infrared signal and tell the system where you were pointing. Now... Hey, um, wait a minute, though. Mm -hmm. That's... Wasn't that pretty similar to the first Kindle? That like the first touchscreen e ink displays? I think they were infrared too. Uh maybe. I think they were. I'm I'm pretty sure they were not capacitive. Now, I don't know that there were a bunch of holes around the, the corners <laughs> of the kindle. <laughs> they probably had, you know, better like infrared diffusers, but I'm pretty sure that's the same, uh, the same so it probably worked pretty good, right? Until dust started filling up those ho those little openings around the bezel, and then oh. you had to vacuum out the edge of your CRT to get touch to work again. Oh, no. I was just say it was not very exact. It was basically like a two-character area. So it wasn't anything like what we have today with like an iPhone where you can touch in between two letters and the word. I mean, oh, this was yeah. pretty, pretty rustic, pretty primitive, but wild. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Well, the other thing that's weird is <laughs> this is so strange okay so it ran something called the terminal operating system which itself ran a terminal emulator for running programs that were made for the hp 2640 line of terminals that were from the 1970s as well as a version of microsoft dos so it's like terminal on terminal on terminal <laughs> yo dog <laughs> i heard you like operating systems that's right yeah yeah, this reminded me of some of those weird XT and AT machines from IBM that had yeah. terminal Support capability. For mainframe stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it gets weirder, though. HP okay. was not sitting still. Uh, a later model included both an Intel 8088 as well as a Z80, so it could run both MS-DOS and CPM. <laughs> both. That's kind of cool. They weren't the only ones to do this. Sounds expensive. It, yeah, it was expensive. Um, <laughs> what we're saying, though, is the 80s are a wonderful time. And I, the HP 150 has my heart. I want one. Can I just say, this is like a very... I think it's quite a handsome machine. And not just because it's an all-in-one, although all-in-ones from the 80s always tend to look cool. But I just... I, I think it looks nice. Yeah. The display is like very forward. It's kind of in your face because, again, it was designed to be touched. Oh, man. It's it's a cool-looking machine. Well, good job, HP. There's one on eBay right now. Ooh. Just get... Don't look it up. So this is HP 150 touchscreen desktop computer with dual-disc drive, keyboard, and printer. Oh, it's a dual-disc. Uh, oh, and the printer and the keyboard. Mm, that's not going to be cheap. How much do you think it is? Uh, well, they didn't sell that many of them, right? So I'm going to guess, uh, I don't know, 600 bucks. $3,500. Oh, wow. You can tell the economy is good. <laughs> yeah, it is if you have an HP 150 kicking around. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Pretty wild. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. HP. Go HP. There you go. Up next, and uh, this isn't the last one, right? No, we've got two more. Okay, good. I'm having fun. We've got Radio Shack. You know, again, 
they had been uh, pretty well known for the TRS-80 a few years prior, which was like like a really, really, really low cost machine that um, was designed to even kind of be used with like TVs and, and weird, weird computer. Um, but Tandy had sold a lot of machines through Radio Shack and the, the release of the Tandy 2000 and fall of 1983 sounds like it's going to be a big hit. Um, but yeah, here's the thing. Um, despite the Tandy 2000 being their first MS-DOS machine, um, and one that was, by the way, pretty fast uh, relative to most clones at 8 megahertz, was plagued, unfortunately, with a bunch of compatibility issues. In fact, software that was not purely text-oriented just straight up failed to work properly. <laughs> Whoopsie-daisy. Whoopsies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so the next year... They release and unveil the 1000, uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Seems kind of like it should be a lot worse than, yeah. the, one, than the 2000, but it's not really, is it? No, this is wild. So with the 2000, they were going to clone the PC. With the 1000, mm-hmm. they were going to clone the PC Junior. And as okay. we talked about in a previous episode, the PC Junior was a giant disaster. Yeah, not good. Mm-hmm. So Tandy had put all this R&D into this machine uh, to take on the PC Junior. Okay. But Radio Shack greatly benefited from this work because they not only made the Tandy 1000 fully PC compatible, Mm -hmm. but because they were trying to match the PC Junior, it came with a bunch of work to the sound and graphic systems. Uh, Yeah, because the the Junior was kind of pitched at gaming, home gaming, right? Yeah, gaming and home use. Right. And so the term Tandy Sound and Graphics became the phrase, even though the PC Junior had implemented some of it. So (laughs) had done it first. Yeah, so it it came Uh with three square wave voice sounds with independent volume control per voice. And like you can go, again, we have another 8-Bit Guy video in the show notes, uh, watch this because you can hear the the sounds that the Tandy 1000 puts out, and they're amazing for the time. And it had 16 colors at 320 by 200 resolution. Really, no one else was doing this. So the Tandy 1000 looked great and sounded great, and it had a much better keyboard. In fact, Radio Shack executives apparently openly mocked the terrible keyboard the PC Junior shipped with, that little membrane. Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it was hard to be worse, right? Yeah. They targeted a machine that ended up failing very publicly, but they ended up sort of at the in the best position possible because they had a PC compatible that was amazing for games. Yeah. And they had also, like some of the other systems we've mentioned, they had worked really hard at modernizing some of the hardware. And so it only came with three slots, but none of them were needed for basic functionality. They They brought a lot of stuff into the board design itself. So Tandy had uh, had really started to modernize this hardware beyond what IBM had done on their own. Yeah, and the work didn't stop at the hardware either. They they bundled a GUI environment that was named Deskmate. Uh, they had done this with a variety of models of the 1000. And frankly, the work on this had started as, as clear back as the TRS-80Ds. But it was kind of overhauled, obviously, for the clone era. Um, and as a desktop environment, it included a word processor, a spreadsheet program, a calendar, a basic database program as well. And uh, it actually ended up proving to be fairly popular in schools because it was bundled with the machine. It didn't need to be purchased separately. So yeah, needless to say, the Tani 1000, huge sales hit. Um, its advanced color and sound made it just 
really desirable for the the home computer market for games and its low price was a win for pretty much anyone in the market especially education um, in fact by 1986 tandy had achieved 25 percent personal computer market share which is unbelievable they were tied with apple in second place just behind ibm pretty amazing they killed it with the with the tandy 1000 and they had a bunch of models later on uh that you know added different functionality and everything but this line was a huge success yeah and now radio shack sells nfts that's a topic for another time (laughs) i want sorry sorry. (laughs) i want to close this out by talking about the digital equipment corporation rainbow 100 okay and i chose this because it makes those hp models with two modes seem pretty pedestrian because it supported three different modes so it had MS-DOS mode that ran on the Intel 8088. It ran CPM, thanks to a Z80 CPU on the board. And it had an emulated VT100 mode because Digital Equipment Corporation had all these VAX line of mainframes running around from the 70s. And you could get one of these and run those programs and communicate with them. Wow, that's a lot of different modes. All It's an all-in-one computer. Well, it's not. It's a tower, but it's a does everything you may need to do. Um, there you go. Pseudo, pseudo all-in-one. Yeah, yeah, all-in-one in your mind. Right, right. Not physically. Tons of pieces. <laughs> and the tower was massive, as you may imagine. This is basically three computers in one. Yep, looks big. Early models came out in 1982, but they lacked the ability to boot from a hard drive. Uh, that was resolved in a revision the next year. But this complexity led to issues with ms-dos compatibility because this machine was so complex and a lot of hardware had to be shared between the different systems the way the hardware interrupts worked uh ms-dos really didn't know what to do with and digital equipment corporation tried to like guide programmers in the right direction like oh just tweak your programs and they'll work but of course why would you do that when there was this whole market of machines coming coming to the surface you know and to make matters worse they used their own rx50 floppy disk drives um they were proprietary and they were unfortunately limited to single-sided disks um which by the early 1980s was kind of uh, contrary to the norm right um they could only be purchased by uh dec itself um and at first Neither CPM nor MS-DOS could be used to format the diskettes. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, This was later rectified after customer complaints about lock-in began to pile up, but not the greatest start there. Yeah, it's it's not good, right? I mean, you are competing in an ecosystem that exists solely because the first machine was so open open right and then and, to be like nope and you're trying to put your own closed <laughs> legacy hardware on top of it that didn't well didn't go that'll well. work that'll oh it didn't work it did not work very well well at least everything else was good <laughs> they, they did change some of this as they went on i'll okay. give them credit okay the rainbow 100 despite its name lacked color graphics out of the box <laughs> but <laughs> color could be added after the fact with a custom graphic uh, module again only sold by yikes. deck couldn't go out and put any video card in it you wanted. Mm. And uh, the expansion slots weren't as open as these others and these other machines where you could put... There were, now, there were some limitations about what the system expected in certain orders. Mm-hmm. Basically, the expansion slots in the Rainbow 100, like one was just for graphics and one was just for... 
a, a floppy controller or something like sure. that. And so you were pretty locked into their idea of expansion. And again, you're competing against machines that don't have these limitations. And so there were yeah. more complaints about that. And well, and, and certainly it, it probably comes down to the complexity of the machine, right? But like one thing that they did do that I think is pretty cool is that the machine could drive two displays. So if you had one in text mode, uh, the other one could display graphics and or vice versa, which is just pretty unusual. Yeah, it is unusual, but I don't think it was enough to like overcome these these issues, yeah. uh, both the technology issues and I, mean, I think this is like one part technology issue, one part business bad business decisions that killed the mm -hmm. Rainbow 100. And yeah. it never really made it off the ground in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's too bad. They have a cool logo. And it's a cool name. Rainbow 100 is a good name for a computer. Okay, so the question becomes... Well, then what happened to the IBM PC? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, That's where we started <laughs> right, right. all this. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There are a lot of answers to that question. Obviously, the, the tidal wave of competing compatible products did not do IBM any favors. No. Um, eventually, it didn't really even matter if new computers were compatible with IBMs because the world of MS-DOS, it, it, it took over and it abstracted the hardware away as it did. So IBM really lost ground pretty quickly. And then IBM's own later models, they didn't really help much, did they? No. So in 1987, they launched the personal system line of machines, mm -hmm. uh, PS2, personal system two. I had one of those. Uh, it's a cool controller, good games. Spyro. It's a different PS2. Oh. oh. It is confusing. Personal Delete system, that. not cut that, cut that, PlayStation. Cut that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And it was going to wipe the slate clean, entire new line of PCs. And with these machines, IBM tried to claw back the control from the market. And they did so by introducing the very custom, very proprietary micro-channel architecture. And this was going to replace the system of uh, open slots that had existed previously. But it proved more complicated to work with on IBM's part. And IBM has now seen what happens when you make open hardware. And so they patented the bejesus out of the microchannel architecture, <laughs> and they were going to charge license fees to other companies that wanted to use it. Yeah, and how do you recover from that? Especially after DOS has already grabbed its its stronghold. Not good. Well, and that's not to say that the PS2 line was, was totally a flop. It, it wasn't. Um, IBM sold... Uh, some 3 million machines in the first 18 months, which is pretty good. And uh, and some of its features, like PS2 keyboard and mouse ports, they lived on for a long time. You can still find them uh, on PC motherboards today. Almost all of them, in fact. Like newer, really, really, really fancy PC motherboards um, that have Thunderbolt and, and a couple stuff like that, it, they've gotten rid of the PS2 ports, but I bet you 80% of the boards on the market still have it. It's pretty crazy. But it was just too little too late. IBM, yeah. they lost control of the world they created. Mm. Its decision to build this computer with off-the-shelf components with heavy reliance on partners like Intel and Microsoft that they could get to market quickly, but it also meant that they were never really ever in the driver's seat. IBM, they would go on to make other lines of personal computers, but the but the heyday of the original PC just it would never return. Um, the cut-down PS1 line was meant for home users, but like the PC Junior, just never really got off the ground. 
And then the Aptiva and Ambra lines, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. No Those one does. Hard words. No one ever yeah. used any of these computers. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> they would follow, but uh, the world had just simply moved on. Uh, and then in 2004, IBM sold its personal computer business to the company that buys everyone's personal computer business, Lenovo. And uh, they exited the market that it helped start. Womp, womp, womp. Yeah, it is sad. They had, I mean, I'm sure like a Mac user in 1987 would not say this is sad. (laughs) You're right. right. Because they were, at the time, maybe not by 87, but in the early 80s, it was a threat that IBM would take over the personal computer market. Oh, for sure. And in a way, the architecture they came up with did. Intel plus Microsoft plus a bunch of generic hardware components. Like, in a way, that's still the personal computer industry today. Now, there's obviously changes that have happened over the years. But, you know, put it on a whiteboard and step two feet back version of this is the same as what IBM did in 1981. That's incredible to me. I mean, that's really, to me, the legacy of the IBM PC. It gave us... And even, even little stuff. Like the expansion slots, they're yeah. the same. PS2, you know, all these things <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. have hung on. It's 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 honestly pretty incredible. And that's what makes it sad to me that they, while they gave all of these things to the market and created this, really this world as we know it, that they don't play in it anymore. Like that's got to, mm-hmm. that's got to sting. Yeah. Well, their, their PowerPC architecture looks really promising with Apple and, uh, oh. you know, they're not totally out of the game. Interesting. Huh? Huh? Oh, sorry. Mm. Uh, So here we are at the end of the episode. And frankly, at the end of this season of Flashback. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed learning more about the history and legacy of IBM PC. I probably learned the most out of everyone because I had essentially zero knowledge about this before we started the season. So it's been a lot of fun for me. I've done a lot of reading. I've watched a lot of videos. I know a lot more than I did. So it has been has been fun. Uh, we don't currently have plans for season four, but we'll be sure to let you know on Twitter if we do. So be sure to follow us over there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as ISMH, and you can find me on a bunch of other shows here on Relay FM, including Connected and Mac Power users. They're both very good. Quinn, where can people find you? Uh, you can't find me on any podcast because that's not what I do, <laughs> as it might be uh, obviously notable from Stevens incredible vocal performance relative to my own uh but you can find me reading scripts on youtube that that i write at uh, youtube.com slash snazzy or you can find my errant ramblings on twitter and instagram and other socials at snazzy q if you want to find links to a bunch of these weirdo pc clones head on over to the website relay.fm slash flashback slash 25 Quinn, I've enjoyed this season, and uh, I guess it's time to say goodbye. Uh, I guess it is, for the meantime. Hopefully not for a long time. Hopefully not forever. Bye, y'all.